Amen. Lord, you are indeed our strength, our light, our song. Lord, you're the reason we breathe in and out. Lord, without you, our lives would be meaningless. And so, Lord, we just thank you for your love, for your grace, for your infinite mercy. And Lord, we thank you for your word that you've given us. Lord, as you desire to speak to every heart, you've given us a roadmap to life. And Lord, you lead us by your spirit. And so, Lord, I pray as we go to your word that you'd be our teacher. Give us ears to hear what you would say to each and every one of us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Welcome again to Calvary Chapel. It is absolutely great to have you here. We are going to be in the Word in a moment, so go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5 as we will continue our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. We'll be in Ruth chapter 3 on Wednesday. I encourage you to come out for that. But before we do that, we're going to do one of my favorite things, which is we're going to have a baby dedication. So if, if Chris and Karina will bring up Sophia, Grandma and Grandpa are here, and the three dapper little boys... Is a good-looking family or what? For those of you who may not know, Chris is one of our pastors, and uh, he's our quiet pastor, but he handles the church finances and just a a lot of other things, just a great blessing to the body. And this is Sophia, the long-awaited-for girl, (laughs) after three boys. Now, how pretty is this little girl? Say hi, everybody. Say hi. Well, let's dedicate Sophia to the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you and praise you, Lord, for the precious gift of life. And Lord, I just thank you for this little girl. Lord, you foreordained before the foundation of the world that she'd be born into this family. Lord, I just thank you, Lord, that she's healthy. Lord, I just pray your hand would be upon her, that she would grow up to be a mighty young woman of God. Lord, we dedicate her life to you. We dedicate her every step, her every breath, Lord, that you would give direction to every part of her life. Father, we lift up Chris to you, Lord. Help him to be the spiritual leader and the man of God in his home. I pray that Sophia would be able to look at her father and see what a man of God looks like, a, a, a life that she would want to pattern her own after, the kind of man that she would one day want to marry as she sees Christ in her dad. Lord, I lift up Karina to you as well. I pray, Lord, your hand would be upon her, that you'd pour out your spirit upon her, that she too would just be a godly mom, a Christ-like example, that Sophia could pattern her life after her mother to grow up to be a woman just like her. And Lord, I pray just for their entire family. I pray for the boys as well. And Lord, we just set aside this family unto you. And we thank you, Lord, for your grace and your hand upon them. We thank you for all the blessings you've given them thus far. And we know you have greater things ahead. So Lord, we pray for Sophia. Lord, may you do exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think in this precious little life. May you be glorified in her and in this family. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Here you go, guys. God bless you. Amen. That's great stuff. I love that. You know, nothing better than seeing kids being raised in a Christian home. Amen? That's a blessing. All right. 1 Timothy chapter 5, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the New Testament. By the way of quick review, if you remember, this is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to his son in the faith, not his 
physical son, but his son in the faith, one he'd given ministry away to, one he had raised up in ministry, one who had traveled with him on part of his missionary journeys, and one who now was pastoring a church in a very godless place, a city called Ephesus, a city that was overrun with sexual immorality, uh, idolatry, and things had crept into the church, and it got to the point where Timothy was ready to quit. We know that because Paul tells him not to leave in chapter 1. You don't have to tell someone not to leave unless they're trying to. And Timothy was at that point where many pastors can get discouraged because he sees the godlessness and the things that are going on within the church. So Paul, writing this letter to the city where he had planted the church himself, a city where he had spent uh, several years of his own life, to these precious people, and specifically to this precious young man, and we don't know for sure, but Paul was probably in his 70s, and Timothy probably in his 30s. So he considers him his son in the faith, and he's giving him some, just some instruction on how to be a pastor. So First and Second Timothy and the book of Titus are all called what are, what are called pastoral epistles in the Bible. And as I've said each, each week, you might say, well, why am I here? I'm not a pastor. But all of these things apply not only to pastors, but to everyone who would call themselves a Christian. Now, as we go through these things, we should see some direction for the church and what the church should look like. And just briefly, in chapter 1, he exhorted Timothy concerning the church to charge them to teach no other doctrine. You know, we think today there are many paths to God, or people do. I don't. Maybe you don't, so maybe we don't. Amen? But there are people who do believe there are many paths to God. And he said, charge them to teach no other doctrine. And you know, sometimes your pastor gets accused of being too dogmatic and too narrow-minded. And you know, I take that as a compliment. Because the truth is that the Word of God is very clear, very direct, and very narrow, and I'm glad it is. Amen? And so the truth is that he's exhorting him to say, don't teach any other doctrine. Anybody who does, you need to shut them down. Why? Because only the truth should be taught. He told them not to give heed to fables or myths or endless genealogies or to get caught up in legalism. When you get to chapter 2, he told them how to conduct themselves in the house of God. And he talked, as we talked about, as my dad talked about this morning, that there needed to be an emphasis on prayer. He talked about the role of women in the church, that God has a special plan for them. Then in chapter 3, we talked about the church reflecting Jesus in the character of the people, and in the, in the content of the message. When people come here, they ought to see Jesus not only in the people, but in the words that are taught. In the content of the message, and in the character of the people, the people who come here ought to see Jesus. And then last week, in chapter 4, we talked about how to be a good, godly, and growing minister. A good minister preaches the Word, a godly minister practices the Word, and a growing minister is progressing in the Word. Now that brings us to chapter 5. And as we come to this morning's text, Paul continues to instruct Timothy, again his son in the faith, on how the church should conduct itself. And this morning's text is really practical. Now, I love these kind of texts because people will often say, well, the Bible doesn't address every issue. Uh, yes, it does. We'll say, well, you can't use the Bible for instruction on this part of life. Yes, you can. And the Word of God gives us direction and instruction for every aspect of life. And as we look at this morning's text, it is incredibly practical as he talks about how God wants His people to be treated. How does God want His people to be treated within the body of Christ? 
How should they be cared for? And so if you're a note taker, there's just three points. First, we're going to see how the pastors or the elders or the leadership were to treat the people. How the pastors or the elders or the leadership were to treat the people, most specifically this young pastor, Timothy. Secondly, we're going to see how the people were to treat the pastors. How are the leadership to treat the people? How are the people to treat those in leadership? And then lastly, how the pastor was to identify leaders within the church. So how God wants His people to be treated, three points, how the pastors were to treat the people, how the people were to treat the pastors, and how the pastor is to identify leaders within the church. So let's begin looking at how God wants His people to be treated, how pastors and elders were to treat the people in the church. And notice again, while it's talking about Timothy, this is a good example for all of us. Because if God's called the pastor to treat the people this way, we ought to treat each other this way. Amen? So let's begin looking at verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 5. It says, Do not rebuke an older man. Now remember, Paul was, a, or Paul was an older man, but Timothy was a young pastor. And as he faithfully shepherded the, the body, most of the people in his church were older than him. And much, if not most of the men, would have been men that were older than him. And so in that culture, especially, a young man was really never to address an older man at all about anything. There was a culture where they were given a great deal of respect. But he tells them that he is as a pastor to shepherd the older men, but there's a way he's to go about it. And he says, do not rebuke an older man. Now he's not telling him to water down the message, but he's telling him how to deliver the message. The word rebuke, we heard it back in 1 Timothy 3. It's described as a striker. Don't be a striker with older men. Don't lash out at them. Don't speak to them with harsh and heavy words. Do not rebuke an older man. But it says, but exhort him as a father. Now the word exhort is parakaleo, and it's where it's a derived from the word parakletos, which is the Holy Spirit. And the word means to come alongside, like a coach encouraging an athlete. So he's saying you don't rebuke, you don't come with harshness toward an older man. Instead, you come alongside him as you would your own father. When you deal with an older man, come alongside him in love, with respect and grace. Not to shy away from the responsibility and the calling to be the spiritual leader to deal with those things he's called to deal with, but to do it in love. Now let me say this to the youth group. I I think that we need a lot more respect of our elders in this world today. There's too much of this attitude and the way people talk to people. And you know, that should not be so. And you know what? Even if the world is that way, the church absolutely should not be that way. And, you know, when we're flipped with our parents, and by the way, parents, if your kids are flipped with you, don't stand for it. Amen? Be the parent. It's okay. God gave them a nice soft spot right in the middle back here, very well padded and ready for a paddle, okay? And you know what? The Bible says a, a man who does not discipline his family, you know, if you don't discipline, you don't love them. And that discipline will drive disobedience far from them. And you know what? One of the reasons kids are so disrespectful is because adults allow them to be. And so we need to stop that. But here in the body of Christ, we should treat those who are older than us with respect. 
you know what? They have more wisdom. They've lived longer. There's things they can share with us. I think we've missed so much in our country that we've lost that whole concept of honoring those who are older than us and learning from their wisdom. And we need to do more of that. So this is a time when it was culturally uh, against a younger man ever instructing an older man, but it was necessary in the church. He's not telling him not to give instruction to those who are older, but he's telling him how to do it, to do it in love and with grace. And that's a good word for everyone in this room, amen? We all need to follow that. We need to have more respect for those who are older. It says in Leviticus, you shall rise up before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, I am the Lord. And you know what? We need to do that. We need to show them honor. Now it says... Do not rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father, younger men as brothers. Now I love this, because what he's saying is, those who are younger than you, you should not be someone who lords it over them that you're older. Well, I'm respecting the older guys. I'm I'm older than you, so get to respecting. Okay, That's not what he's saying. He says, you should treat younger men as brothers, as equals, as partners. He could speak to them in a more authoritative way. But at the same time, he was to treat them in a loving way. You know, it's interesting that when I was young, I'm still a young man, depending on who's listening. My kids would say I'm old, and my dad would say I'm young, so it depends on who you're talking to. But you know what? Where I learned the greatest deal as a young man was from those who loved me enough to exhort me. My dad had an assistant pastor by the name of Danny Lehman, and he was, he's now the head of y, one of the head of YWAM and Youth with a Mission, and he has been for years. And I remember being 15 years old, and he would see me at church, and he would come up to me and say, what did the Lord show you in your devotions this morning, Dave? Um, uh, I, uh, I got nothing. I didn't read my Bible this morning. I'm so busted, you know what I mean? And here I am, 15, and he would exhort me. And I'll tell you what, there were literally Sunday mornings I made sure I read my Bible because I knew Danny might come up and ask me what God showed me in the Bible that morning. And you know what? Having someone, the younger brother, that you can exhort, again, treating him as a brother, but exhort him in love. And that never changed. I saw Danny 10 years later. I was in my mid-20s. I was serving as a youth pastor. I was up at my parents' house. He goes, so I understand you're a youth pastor. I said, yeah. I said, so when are you going to take your other foot out of the world, get serious about serving God, and start serving Him full time? Oh. Now, I knew that he was doing it in love. And actually, I appreciate it because here I am still remembering it all these years later. And so the younger man, treat him as a brother. You can be more exhortive with them. But again, show them love the way that you would love your brother. And this is what Paul is telling Timothy as to how he's to treat the men in the church. He says in 1 Peter 5, Not as being lords over those entrusted to you, but be an example to the flock. So how is he to treat men in the church? Respectfully coming along the older men as fathers, treating younger men as brothers, not lording it over them, but with the ability to be more exhortive toward those who are younger. Now verse 2, he starts to talk about how to treat women. We've seen how to treat men. Now how are we to treat women? It says, older women as mothers. Now, we all respect our dads, but don't our moms have a special place in every one of our hearts? And they ought to, amen? And what's, what's incredible about this 
is he says to Timothy, the women that are older, you treat them the way you would treat your mom. You treat them with respect. You treat them with, with, you know, with gentleness. You give them honor. Again, he's not telling them to water down or avoid the hard, mes- hard message, but to deliver it with the same care that a loving son would speak to his mother. Respect and honor that is due their age. You know, it's interesting. A young pastor should expect and appreciate some mothering from the older women in the church. When I was, in, when I was at Calvary San Jose, my dad was the head of the seniors. And many of them were even up into their 90s. I think some of them were over 100 years old. And the way that they would treat me was like their grandson. And I loved it. I mean, they would come up and pinch my cheeks, literally. You know, they would come up, and some of them were visiting a few weeks ago, and I had lipstick all over my face from these old ladies kissing me on the cheek. You know, but they, they treated me like their son or their grandson. Now, how should I treat these women? With respect and gentleness. And even if I have to instruct them as their pastor, I should do it in a loving and a respectful and a kind way. Amen? And this is an instruction for all of us that we're to treat the older women the way we would treat our mother. Then it says younger women as sisters with all purity. Now Timothy, as a godly man, was to make certain his conduct toward younger women was always pure and above reproach like a big brother with his little sister, with all purity. That means not flirtatious or inappropriate in any way with the younger women in the church. You know, you need to view the women in your church as your sisters, because that's what they are. Amen? They are your sisters in Christ, and you should treat them appropriately. And I love the fact that as we go through these two verses here, that he speaks about the church using family relationships as the example, because that's exactly what we are. This is a family, amen? It's been said that blood is thicker than water, but the Holy Spirit is thicker than blood. And when you got Jesus in common, you got everything in common. And I tell you right now, you guys are my family. And I love you guys. And it's a blessing that we are all one in Christ. And so I love that as he starts to talk about how Paul's instructing this young pastor on how God wants His people to be treated. This young pastor is not to lord it over people. He's not to walk around, you know, with an iron fist and, you know, and slamming people and, and being aggressive with those who are older than him. But he's to instruct them. He's not to water down the truth, but he's to do it respectfully, to do it in love. And he's to treat those who are younger than him. He can exhort them more. But with the young men, treat them as brothers. And the young men, women, treat them as sisters with all purity, above reproach in the way that he interacts with the younger women in his church. That should be an example for every one of us. Amen? Now he moves on to say how to treat widows and those in need. Now, as we go through this, you're going to be amazed at the requirements for the church to take a widow into their number. Now understand, this was not just giving a widow a helping hand. This was literally bringing them in and, and in a sense, putting them on the church payroll almost. What they would do is there was no welfare system in those days, no social security, and a woman who did not have a husband or children to take care of her was in trouble. Especially an older woman who couldn't really provide for herself. And the church was called by God to 
take them into their number, and they gave a daily provision to them to care for their needs. But you'll notice that there were some requirements for these widows to be taken into the number. Look at verse 3. Honor widows who are really widows. Now, those who are really widows could be added to the number, but as we're going to see, there were certain qualifications to really be a widow. If you remember back in Acts chapter 6, when the deacons were first appointed, Stephen and Philip being among them, what happened was that some of the Hellenistic Jews, some of the Jews with a Greek background, came up and said, hey, uh, our women aren't being, our widows aren't being cared for as well as the Jewish widows are. And you know what? It said then that the, the apostles realized, and God put it on their heart, that they couldn't take care of every physical need, so God raised up deacons to do it. But you'll notice all the way back in Acts 6, not long after the church was founded, in Acts 2, already you're seeing this care for the widows because there was a need that was there. And it says there that those who are really widows. Let me say this. We are to to care, the body of Christ is to care for those in the body who are going through a difficult time. But one of the challenges that we have as pastors, and let me confess to you, this is my first time ever being a senior pastor. I spent almost 15 years doing youth, and I've been a senior pastor now for about six years. And one of the biggest struggles is, just being real open with you, is knowing when to, to help and when not to. Because the truth is, we can't help everybody who asks. We just can't. It's a physical impossibility. Nor does God want us to. Because sometimes what God wants us to do is to allow the person to go through what they're going through so that he might be glorified and they may grow spiritually. There are times when God wants us to step in and there are times when God does not want us to. And as you read through this text, you're going to see that this is very clear. And I want to say this. It's helping those within the body, but believe it or not, you'd be amazed how often we get calls from people who've never been here like every other day they open up the phone book and they call up and and they you know are all but sometimes demanding that we help them and some of the requests that are made are just crazy i've had people call me on the phone i mean drunk out of their mind hey you know what I, I, somebody stole my wallet and you need to give me some more money and i'm like uh yeah that'll be happening real soon now if you want to here's the truth My heart is, I'll give $5,000 if it's what God wants us to do to further His kingdom, but I'm not going to give 50 cents to prop up someone's sin. And this is the heart of God. That honor the widows that are really widows. Minister to those who are really in need. But don't prop up sinful behavior. Don't do it. Pastor's calling is to exercise biblical wisdom and discernment when responding to people's requests for help and we're going to see some good guidelines in this text and any pastor will tell you it's amazing and again you know what christians are considered a soft touch in some ways i think that's good because they consider us to be people who are kind but at the same time there are people that make a living out of calling every church in town and getting a little bit of money from each one every month and god doesn't want us to prop up that behavior For most part, we try to limit the request to those that we know because we need to understand how the funds will be used because it's God's money. I had a pastor friend of mine, just real quick, and we'll move on, but he had a guy in his church who got real aggressive in the stock market, 
lost a ton of money, was about to have his house foreclosed on, and wanted the church to come up with the $55,000 he needed so he could stay in his house. And when they didn't, he left the church mad and gossiped about the pastor to everybody in town. Now, if you show up asking us for $55,000 for your house, not going to happen. The truth is that our actions have consequences. And if we're faithful stewards of what God has given us, we won't get so upside down. We get upside down when we're not faithful to work or we're outliving the means God has given us. And it's not the church's job to bail out the wrong behavior. Now, there are times when we should give, and we'll talk about that as we move on. But it's, it is amazing, some of the things that you will hear. By the way, the church is not a bank. Amen? It's not a bank. We have people calling wanting loans all the time. Can we loan? Can I borrow $4,000 to buy this car and I'll pay? Is this the B of A? This is Calvary Chapel. No. That's not, I don't get that. But here's the point. At the same time, we don't want anybody in this building to go hungry. We don't want anybody in this building to, you know, Go without medical care when they need. You know, we want to care for the needs of the church, but not the wants. Amen? And that's what the Lord would have us to do. And by the way, if you're here, let me say this. Here's another thing that happens, and I just want to warn you. There are people in the church that will call us, and we may have helped them. We stop helping them, and then they'll start calling people out of the, bullet, out of the directory. And start asking you for help. So if somebody you don't know very well calls you up and asks you for help, Tell them to call one of the pastors. Amen? Because usually there's a reason. Now let's move on. I want to take a look at some examples here. By the way, you'll notice that a widow is not somebody... It says, honor the widows who are really widows. Widows who are really widows are not widows by their own choice. It's not something they got themselves into. It was a, a trial of life that came upon them as they were living for the Lord. It wasn't that they went out and did something abusive and out of control and got themselves in trouble and now they're blaming and expecting God to bail them out. Now God may do that through different avenues as you're repentant and broken. But the truth is that someone who's truly God wants to minister to is someone who's been put into that situation in their own portion of life. Look what it says. But if any widow has children or grandchildren... Let them first learn to show piety at home and to repay their parents, for this is good and acceptable before God. The first responsibility to care for an elderly widow did not fall on the church, but the family. The first person to take care of the elderly widow was the kids and the grandkids. And the same is true today. People will come in and say, well, can you help me with this? Usually people we don't know very well. And then... I'll often say, well, do you have any family? Well, yeah, my dad won't help me anymore. Now, that's a big red flag. You got kids? How far would your kids have to go before you'd stop helping them? They'd have to be way out of bounds, wouldn't they? So when I call a dad, he says, oh, I'm not helping her. Nope, never again. Well, well, why not? Well, here's why. And usually, we shouldn't help them either. You know, we need to be brought to the end of ourselves sometimes so that we might look up. We need to come to a place where we're desperate for God and we can no longer trust in anything else and we realize that our sin has consequences. And we do not want to prolong the amount of time it takes for someone to be brought to the end of themselves. Now, 
I'm saying all this, I want to be very clear that we help people all the time. But when we help them, we want to make sure we're doing what God would have us to do. But the first question should be, is there a family member that can help you out? Now I want to say this, the church, while we are a family, we should never try to take the place of the family. I do not supersede a father's uh, position in his home. When I was a youth pastor, kids would come and ask me things all the time, and I would say, go ask your dad. Because they would want me to take their dad's spot, and that's not my spot to take. Parents, the number one place your kids should learn about Jesus is in your house. The number one person they should learn about the Lord from is you. What they get at church ought to be gravy, amen? And so they ought to see it in their parents and learn it from their parents and see it in the way you treat each other, and then when they come to church, it's just an addition. It's a bonus, Because we should not take the position of spiritual headship over your kids. Again, we can minister to them and and, and care for them, but that's your calling. And the same is true here, that the church should not come in and supersede the family. You know what? It could be that God's desire is that widow be in the home with the the children and grandchildren that she might minister to them. That's not going to happen if the church jumps in and brings them onto the church grounds every time in this case. And so he's saying, look, if you got children, go to them first. Grandchildren, go to them first. Widows were to be under their family. Then it says in verse 5, Now she who is really a widow and left alone, trusts in God, continues in supplications, and prays night and day. Wow. Qualifications to be a widow cared for by the church was not only that you were really a widow which meant you had no family left. It says there you were left alone. That was the first qualification. No children, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, nobody. But also, not only were they left alone, but they trusted in God. They were women of godly character. And then it says, and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. A woman who is to be cared for by the body should be involved in the body. You know, can I tell you the easiest people in the world for us to help, and I don't want this to come out wrong, and and I, I pray it doesn't, so I hope you just bear with me. The easiest people to help, and they usually don't even have to ask for it, are the people that are totally plugged in, are serving God, are a very active part of this ministry, have servants' hearts, and then they go through something difficult. And often, we will call them and say, do you need any help? You know why? Because it's easy to minister to them. It's hard when somebody you haven't seen in six months, who never comes, when they do their critical, and then they come in and demand that you help them. That's a whole different story, isn't it? You notice in this text, it's someone who's praying night and day. It's someone who's involved in the body. Someone who's a part of the body. I mean, if we take it to the family example, imagine if you had an estranged family member you hadn't seen in 10 years, and the last 10 times you heard from them, they cursed you out on the phone. And then they showed up wanting something from you. You might help them out of grace anyway. And that's how the church is sometimes. But, what about a family member that's near and dear to you, and has been forever, and you'd give them your right arm, Right? That's the body of Christ, a picture of the body of Christ. So real widow speaks not only of her circumstances, but her character. She trusts in God. She serves in the church. And a prerequisite for being on this payroll was that she be a woman who is active within the body. And then it says in verse 6, 
But she who lives in pleasure is dead while she lives. These are pretty direct words, aren't they? Paul's telling Timothy, if she's carnal and she's living for the world and she's hanging out with all the ungodly stuff in Ephesus, she's already dead where she lives, don't help her. Whoa. Now that, seems, that doesn't seem very gracious. You know what, we think it's gracious when we give to people even when we're propping up sin sometimes. We need to be careful. And he's saying here, not one who lives for pleasure, not one who comes to church for financial help so she can continue on in her carnal lifestyle. She's dead where she lives. She has no true joy. She's caught up in worldly pleasure. The Bible says that sin is pleasurable for a season, but in the end it leads to death. And guys, we're not to prop up that behavior. And you know what? We have erred on the side of grace many times. I'm, again, openly confessing to you. We've had people we've helped and helped and helped. And then we find out, we had one couple that we found out, they were spending mo- part of the money that we gave them on pot. But it's medical marijuana, man. Dude, don't even start with me on that. I don't care how many laws they pass. I don't care that it grows up out of the ground. God doesn't want you smoking that stuff. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, yeah, God gave it to me. Dude, stop. But it's so natural. You've heard me say it. So is mercury. Smoke some of that. See how that works out for you. Just because it comes out of the ground doesn't mean God wants you to smoke it. Amen? But we find that out and immediately we're just, oh, we're heartbroken. But you know what? We knew that when we gave to help them, our heart was to help them. They were in difficult circumstances. And, and you know what? And I'm known for erring on the side of grace rather than on the side of being you know, hard. And you know what? If I stand before God one day and I've been too gracious, I'll take that. But at the same time, I need to, we need to use wisdom. You need to use wisdom when someone comes seeking help from you to make sure this is what God would have you to do. It's not ungodly to, to say no. Sometimes that's exactly what God wants you to do. Amen? So keep that in mind. And then it says, And these things command that they may be blameless. A good pastor will teach these things with boldness and clarity so that all will know what's expected of them, that they may walk blameless. He said, you teach this so that everybody understands what a real widow is and what the requirements are for her to be cared for by the church. She can't just be someone who's living an ungodly lifestyle, living in carnality, not involved in the body, someone who's not you know, in prayer, someone who's not a woman of character, and just show up and automatically have all her needs taken care of. To the very contrary, her sin has consequences, and she needs to see that. Verse 8. But if anyone does not provide for his own, and especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith, and is worse than a what? An unbeliever. How does God feel about a man providing for his family? And in this context, for children providing for their widowed mother. Grandchildren providing for their widowed grandmother. God says someone who doesn't provide for them is worse than an unbeliever. God's normal way of provision is not getting a handout from somebody but God giving you a job, allowing you to work, and providing for you that way. Amen? And who is the one who gave you the job you've got? And who gave you the ability to do the job you're doing? So whose money is it that you're bringing home? Amen. So we need to understand that that is God's provision. And by the way, laziness is a sin. Did you know that? The Bible says, A man who does not work shall not eat. 
He has denied the faith. He is worse than an unbeliever. Paul's emphasizing the responsibility of a man to provide for his family. This is the minimum requirement of a Christian man. If he doesn't do this, his conduct is worse than an unbeliever. Don't unbelievers provide for their family? Unbelievers do. How much more should a believer provide for his family? How much more should a believer be faithful? Jesus gave the example when on the cross he looked down at the apostle John and said, behold your mother, when speaking of Mary, because he made sure that his earthly mother was taken care of. This is a picture of how we should be operating in the body of Christ. Even an unbeliever provides for his family. You know what, I'm a soft touch dad, I really am. I really am. My, my, my daughter doesn't want me to do her wedding because she says I'm going to ball all the way through it and it'll just never happen. And I'm going to do it anyway, and she doesn't know that, but it's just going to happen. But the point is that when I see just dads and moms being dads and moms, sometimes it just wipes me out. Just, just puts me under. I saw a spot on, and I don't typically quote things from TV, but I saw a spot on ESPN yesterday about this boor, boy who was born blind and crippled. And at the same time, God had given him a real gift to be a musician. And it showed him when he was a little boy and growing up, and now he's in college, and he wanted to be in the college band to play the trumpet. So his dad now pushes him in the wheelchair as he plays, and he has to go to every band practice, plus he goes to every class with his son all day long and helps him in class so he can be enrolled in school, so he can be in this band. And then his dad got a new job working graveyard so he could be, work all night long so he could be with his son all day and takes a two-hour nap and just ministers to his son. And I was undone. Because I thought, you know what? That's the way a dad ought to be. And you know what? How, how much more... Would, and then my, I don't know if he was a believer. He might have been. But how much more in the body of Christ should dads be sacrificial for their families? Amen? Well, you know, I'd like to provide for my family, but, you know, surf's up. Don't do that. Don't do that. Be a godly man. Be a godly provider. And when you don't provide for your family, you're worse than an unbeliever. You're a poor testimony. You harm the name of Christ. And you're doing less than an unbeliever would. We should not be doing that in the body of Christ. Amen? Every time I talk about this stuff, people get mad at me. And let me say this. I've been looking for a job for X number of months. You know what? Look harder. Oh man, Pastor Dave's in trouble now. But here's the truth. Does God promise to provide for us? What's the answer? So is he hiding all the jobs from you? Make a job out of getting a job, amen? There it is, so be it. That was Pastor Dave's opinion for the morning, all right? Then it says, Do not let a widow under 60 years old be taken into the number, and not unless she has been the wife of one man. He says if she's under 60, she can take care of herself. How come I got 23-year-old guys calling me up asking for help at the church? He says, 59-year-old women, get a job. That's what he's saying. <laughs> if you're under 60, provide for yourself. She also may be remarried and have an, uh, you know, another husband who will care for her. And yet we got people all over this town holding up signs because they, oh, I can't get a job. I'm 24. Stop. Dude. You know, it's interesting. Pastor Chuck, in one of his commentaries, Translate a verse, shut up and get a job. Now, I wouldn't say that, but the point is that so often, you know, laziness is a character flaw. 
And if you've got kids, you know what you're teaching your kids? What do you t- if the dad's not working, what does he tell his kid that doesn't do his homework? Do your work, son. Well, why, dad? You don't. Oh, ouch. <laughs> so the point here is that he's exhorting them that, yes, we are to care for those in need, but those who are truly in need, those who are so struggling with health and physical issues, those who have lost their family and are elderly and cannot provide for them, those are the people we take care of, amen? Not those who are lazy sitting at home watching Sports Center. No, not them, amen? Then it says of her that, not unless she's been the wife of one man. The woman had to be uh, over 60 and only and been a faithful wife to the man she was married to before he died. Man, there's a lot of prerequisites here, aren't there? She had to have been faithful to her husband, a godly wife, a woman who had respect for marriage and family. And remember, they were going to be a part of the church in a sense. So it was important that they have a godly example to those that were in the body. Verse 10. Well reported for good works. The woman was not only a faithful wife, but she lived a fruitful walk. Not one who began in order to get, oh, I need the church's help. I, I better, get to, better get to doing some good works. When people call us like that. And, and I'll be honest with you. One of the first things we tell people that call in wanting help is we'll see you at church on Sunday and we'll talk after church. That weeds out about 95% of them. Oh, I've got to come to church? Uh, yeah. Oh, well, not so much. They don't, they don't, they don't even want you to give them the money. They want you to deliver it, you know? I really need some help, but here's where I live. And could you bring it by my house? Between 12 and 1. You know, that, you know, my soaps are from 10 to 12, and then, you know. Amazing. So we just say, hey, well, come to church on Sunday. We'll talk to you after church. Oh, I don't want to do that. Well, conversation's over. Amen? The point here is, again, that they be a part of the body and that they... Be doing good works. And then it says of this woman, if she has brought up her children, a good and faithful mother also could refer to the raising up of the children of others. In those days, women would take and abandon children. They would educate other children in the faith. If she lodged strangers, she needed to be a woman who was given to hospitality, a woman who gave herself before she asked to receive. You know what, it's amazing to me that, the, again, the people easy to give to are the same people who are willing to give. There are those who only want to receive and never give. And that's a character flaw as well. That's sinful behavior. It says there that she washed, if she has washed the saints' feet. This was a woman who was willing to serve in the most menial of tasks. Whatever it was, there was nothing that was below her. You know, this is what I look for in ministry all the time. God, if someone who's not willing to sweep or put away chairs is not willing to serve. You know, we should be willing to do whatever for the Lord. It says there, if she has relieved the afflicted, she ministers to the needs of the sick. Don't you want to help this woman already? Don't you just want to help her? She ministers to the needs of the sick. She's raised a godly family. She's doing good work. She's within the body of Christ. She's a prayer warrior. How can we not help her? And this is the heart of those they would bring into the number. It says there, she diligently followed every good work, faithful in every area of life, has ministered to others with her life. Now time for others to minister to her. 
She's ministered to others. Now it's time for others to minister to her. She's raised her, go- her, her kids in a godly home. It's now time for her godly kids to care for her. If her godly, she doesn't have any godly kids, it's time for the church to step up and minister to her. And that's what this whole context is about. Again, notice the godly character of those the church was to minister to. The church was not just to cut a check to every person who walked in the door. You know, early on here in Calvary Santa Cruz, we had a guy who had been out of work for quite a while, and I didn't think he was looking for a job hard enough. And I told him so, which made me real popular. But I said, let's get your resume, and I'll go out with you this afternoon. I'll find five jobs. How about that? And I meant it. But you know what? He thought that we should be paying his mortgage every month. And if some of the pastors need to go out and get jobs so we could afford to do it, then that's what we should do because biblically we should take all that we have in common and care for his needs. And then I made the mistake, you know, dared to take him to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and also to the part where it says, a man who does not work shall not eat. A man who doesn't provide for his family is worse than an unbeliever. We should not prop up that behavior. Amen? And I know this is coming across direct this morning, but the word of God is very clear And again, I want to make sure we keep this in balance. We give and help people all the time. But we want to help people who God wants us to help. Amen? And be good stewards of His finances. Then it says, But refuse the younger widows, for when they begin to grow wanton against Christ, they desire to marry. Refuse younger widows. We're not going to get to the end of this chapter. Refuse younger widows. Now, understand that somebody, their husband could die when they're 25. And then they could come in and they could voluntarily say, I want to be numbered among the widows, have the church care for me. But those who did were committing to being a part of that number for the rest of their lives. And he says, refuse them because time's going to go on and they're going to want to be married again. And so don't do that. Don't put them into a situation where later they're going to feel condemned. Look at it says, verse 12, having condemnation because they cast off their first faith. You know, later, they're going to come to a point where they want to be married again. They're still young. They may want to have children. And that desire to be married is going to conflict with their commitment to being part of that number of widows for the rest of their lives. So don't allow them to fall into that trap. Some so hungry to be married again, they may disregard that vow. Don't don't put them into that situation. Verse 13. We'll go to verse 16. And besides... They learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies, saying things which they ought not. He says, don't bring the young widows in because they'll be running around talking. <laughs> if you bring the young widows in, they'll, just, they'll, they'll have nothing to do with their time. And they'll, you know, they're young and energetic and they'll just be going from house to house and they'll be busybodies and just don't even bother doing that. Don't bring them in. Now, you know, this is not a verse, but it is true. Idle hands truly are the devil's workshop. You know, when you're sitting around with nothing to do, it's amazing how much trouble you get in. Isn't it? And so we need to be busy about God's work. We need to learn not to be idle. You know, people who are idle, they, you know, they, they are free from labor. They're at leisure. They become lazy. And you know what? When there's nothing else going on, it's amazing how quickly our mouth starts moving. And you know what? It says they'll wander house to house. They'll become gossips. They'll talk about other people's. They become busybodies. They start to mind everybody else's business. And they say things which they ought not to say. And so he said, you know what? Don't allow the younger women to be among the number because the results will not be good. Verse 14. Now again, is this very practical or what? 
You think Timothy's going, oh, okay. I had no idea. <laughs> Thanks. This helps. You know, when women come in, how old are you? 52. Sorry. <laughs> Paul's right here. 60. Sorry. <laughs> Eight years, call me back, all right? But there was this very clear direction that was a blessing to the pastor. And I praise God for God's word because I need that direction and so do you. Amen? Therefore I desire that younger widows marry, bear children, and manage the house. Look at the description of a godly woman. What does she do? She gets married, she has children, and she manages the house. Well, that's just not very politically correct. Is it? (coughs) I'm going to say it again. I'm already unpopular with half of you. Let's get the rest, all right? There is no higher calling on this planet than being a godly mom. None. And we think it's less than fulfilling. Well, how are you fulfilled? All you do is raise your children. Are you kidding me? You know, I had a job where I, you know, I had a job that paid very well. But here's the truth. I, went, I sold advertising. The advertising I've sold has come and gone a hundred times over, and no one will ever remember it. But the impact that my wife has had in raising our children in a godly home will impact them for eternity. You tell me where the trade-off is. And he's telling them, younger women, don't be numbered among them and put yourself on a shelf. Go out, be married, raise godly children in a godly home, and you manage the house. That's a high calling. And you know, the, the term housewife or whatever is, oh, that's just, oh, that's just not, not a good thing. I've heard it said that if you paid a housewife for everything she did, you'd have to pay her like $400,000 a year or something like that. If you paid her for all the laundry she did, all the cooking she did, all the drive she, you know, if you had to hire a taxi cab to drive the kids around, and you'd, you'd never make it. But praise God for godly moms. And it says there, they bear the children, they manage the home. Give no opportunity to the adversary to speak reproachfully. Give no occasion. The word literally there means a starting point, a base of operation from which attack is to be made. The base of operation is going to come when a, the woman is not doing what God has called her to do within the home. It says, Satan's, you know, Satan's favorite place to attack is your house. Is that true or not? And a Christian wife who is not doing her job gives Satan a beachfront in her house, a beachhead. Well, you know what? A Christian wife that is faithful in her calling as mother, wife, homemaker, produces a godly testimony, and you know what? Will have an impact that will last for eternity. And so don't take that lightly. Don't let anybody talk down about that. And I want to say this too. Maybe you're here and you've never been married, you've never had children, and you feel unfulfilled. God has a plan for your life, and whatever God has called you to do is God's highest for you, and you do that as unto the Lord. Amen? So don't feel less if you've got five children and you're not working, and don't feel less if you're working because you're never able to have children. You know what? Where God has you, you be faithful where you are, and God will honor that and He will bless it. Amen? So be encouraged. Last two verses. For some have already turned aside after Satan. Some of the young widows had already given in to their fleshly desires and temptations of idleness and tail-bearing and, and, you know, sexual passion would later come, warning to all the widows as to why they must heed Paul's counsel of godly character, a calling to marriage and motherhood and managing the household. Verse 16. If any believing man or woman has widows... Let them relieve them, and do not let the church be burdened that it may relieve those who are really widows. 
Now, he's summing up verses 3 through 16 in verse 16. He says, How are we to treat widows and those who are in need, the families who are related to them, or to care for them first? Because then it allows the church to reserve its funds to support those who are really in need. If the family steps up, then the body can do all that it's called to do. And that's what he's saying here in the verse. Those who are destitute and godly are the ones that God really wants us to help, not those who are lazy and ungodly. Amen? That was just all kinds of quiet in here. All right, well, we're not, we're gonna, I'm not going to speed through the end of the chapter because there's too much good stuff in there. It talks about, I've talked about how the pastors are to treat the people. Next week, it's how the people are to treat the pastors. So make sure you show up, all right? (laughs) So, and we'll look at that next week. So in closing, let me get back to my final page here. How does God want His people to be treated? How were the pastors and elders to treat the people? How were they to treat men? Older men with respect. Younger men as brothers. How were they to treat women? Older women. They're to treat them like their own mom. And younger women as sisters with all purity. And how were they to treat widows and those in need? There was to be, uh, to, check them out, to check them against the word of God before they help them. To not just say there's a need, let me help. Say there's a need and how does it align with the word of God before we help? Amen? And be encouraged that, again, God is faithful and He is Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider. And the Lord will provide for you if you will simply be faithful what He's called you to do. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, we praise You, we worship You, Lord. You are a great and an awesome God. And Lord, we thank You for just how practical Your Word is. And Lord, I do pray that we would take heed of the words we've heard this morning and how we treat people within the body. Lord, again, it's our heart to give All the finances are yours. None of them are ours. But Lord, we want to be good stewards of what you've given us. Lord, we never want to prop up sinful behavior. But Lord, we always want to care for those who are truly hurting and those that you want us to minister to. Lord, I pray also that we would show the proper respect for our elders. That we would show proper love for those who are are younger than us. And Lord, that we would deal with the opposite sex in all purity within the body of Christ. And so, Lord, we just thank you and praise you for your love and your grace. And, Lord, we thank you that you love us enough to give us instructions on the most minute detail of life. You're such a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.